A scripture lesson also comes from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the land, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you speak to us directly in them. We ask that you give us hearts to hear and to love them and to obey them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I just read the Beatitudes uh, just a minute ago. And often when we look at the Beatitudes, people take them as timeless truths and as maxims applicable everywhere and even immediately. And you probably just did that as you listened to them. You thought, yes, I need to be more poor in spirit. Or I need to be more of a peacemaker. Or I need to be more merciful, right? And you think that as you listen to them. But the Beatitudes primarily focus on how to live in the new kingdom that was just then coming in through the ministry of Jesus. Just remember in the chapter before, Jesus makes his appearance and says what? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And so the Beatitudes are not focusing on general maxims how to live, but how his hearers are to live pre-70 AD. How to live in the dying days of the old covenant while preparing for the new covenant that comes in full glory after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus, in other words, is preparing his men and the church for the future. He is teaching them how his appearance, his coming, changes history. How it completely reorients the future from night to day, from judgment to grace. And he is preparing them with wisdom for the future as they expand the kingdom, as they go out and preach, as they move from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the land, as foretold uh, by Jesus in Acts 1.8. And he's even preparing them for persecution. He told them what to do. 
Now, where would he draw from in teaching them this wisdom from the future? Well, obviously, he would draw from the whole Bible, right? Which at that point was just the Old Testament. He was just writing the New Testament as he's speaking it. Now, we know that he would draw from the Old Testament because of Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, where it says in verse 27, quote, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them uh, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. End of quote. In all the scriptures. He then spent the next 40 days opening their mind and applying it to them and teaching them these things. Because Jesus used the whole Bible to speak of himself, I'm going to argue this morning that part of that message of wisdom to his disciples would have come from the book of Ecclesiastes, which Abe read earlier, particularly chapter 9, verses 11 to 18, uh, which is my sermon text this morning. But before I go any further in dealing with Ecclesiastes, moderns like us, like you, have at least two problems with the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, we can't get past the V word. Victory, right? Oh, Voltaire. Uh, vampire? No, that's not the V word. You know what I mean? It's the big V word, Ecclesiastes, and it's vanity, right? Or vain. And not understanding vanity kills our interpretation of the book. Because that word is in 15% of the verses, if you just add them up. So it, it figures big in the book. And secondly, we moderns have another problem with the book. We think that it's a bunch of timeless truths. Little generic sayings of wisdom that apply all the time. Everywhere for everyone. Kind of like the Beatitudes. So later on when it's talking about putting your hand against the wall, be careful because if a snake could bite you, oh yeah, don't put your hands where you're not supposed to put them. I was thinking about that the other night when I was fishing for a rock out in the backyard. I thought, there could be a snake right here. And I thought of that Ecclesiastes. That's our second problem. We think that it's just a bunch of timeless truths. Let's look at vanity first. In chapter 1 of the book, uh, Solomon starts off, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Right? That's what you've always heard. The NIV phrases it utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, neither one of those words, vanity or meaningless, adequately captures the underlying Hebrew word, which is havel or helvel, a word you're familiar with. Vanity connotes either excessive pride and conceit, or if you're thinking of vain, it implies uselessness or futility. But the author is not maintaining that all of life is useless or futile. Nor is he saying it's meaningless. If that were true, even the rest of his pronouncements in the book would be meaningless. So why even read the book? Why not just stop there? The best rendering for Havel is another V word. Vapor. Vapor or vaporous can also be rendered breath, giving the sense of fleeting or ungraspable. It's like a breath or vapor that perishes before your very eyes. You can't wrap your hands around it or your mind. It's like grasping oil. You just can't do it. You men have dropped a wrench in a vat of oil sometime you're cleaning, 
And you can't grab the oil, or you women, you put your hand in olive oil for some reason. You can't grab oil. So instead of vanities of vanities, all is vanities. Vapors of vapors, all is vaporous. And that's what Solomon's going after. Now, throughout the Psalms, this is how the word, the same word, is translated. Psalm 39, verses 5 and 11. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Here for a moment and then gone, vanishing forever. Psalm 94, 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are a mere breath. There is nothing. There is a vapor that disappears. Psalm 144. Man, not just man's thoughts, but man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. It's only age that teaches you that. It goes by pretty quickly. Shadows are like vapors, right? They're here and then gone. You all as children played in the shadows of the bright sun and then all of a sudden a cloud comes by and there's no game, right? There's no shadow. Thoughts and the days of men are like vapors. They're like Nike. Swoosh! And they're gone, right? Yes, I made that up myself. Uh, so we should render verse 2, as I said, vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors, all is vaporous. Meaning that understanding life is like a breath, like the wisp of smoke or a puff of air that disappears. You can't quite catch hold of it. It eludes your grasp. This is the sum total of life under the sun for the human creature. It's frustrating. It's maddening. Apparently futile, unwieldy, uncontrollable, utterly, utterly intractable to the creature. You can't control it let alone comprehend it. You just cannot grasp it. It's like Deion Sanders winning the first three ball games, right? It was ungraspable that he could do that. Or it's like that guy from South Carolina who's in the news this morning who's been a, uh, a virtue of family values for 30 years, and then he's got a mistress in Washington, D.C. and has been committing adultery the whole time. You just can't grasp why a guy would go and throw that all away, 34 years of marriage and kids and a beautiful wife. It's, besides stupid, it's intractable. Well, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon intends to teach you is that real biblical wisdom is founded on the honest acknowledgement that this world's course is enigmatic, that most, if not all, of what happens is quite inexplicable and incomprehensible to us and quite out of your control, out of our control. It's like receiving news that you have a disease. <laughs> Whoa, yesterday you're thinking one thing and today you're not thinking that at all because you've got a disease and everything changes. It's like the Democrats' incomprehensibility of Trump's win. Six years ago, you remember that? They're out crying in the streets all night and just having fits that Trump won. I mean, the rest of us were incomprehensible as well, but still, they were just completely lost it. That's what's happening. We cannot leverage the course of this world this way and that way to suit our purposes. The godly, wise man and woman will humbly concede that God has hidden from us almost everything that we should like to know about his providential purposes. Therefore, all of your attempts to control the world in the course of your lives are mostly 
Futile, useless, vain, empty. Vapor of vapors. The wise man learns to walk by what? By faith and not by sight. He does what he does because God has commanded him to and he trusts in the Lord. He walks by faith. The life of faith is not grounded in our ability to discern the meaning and course of everything in the world. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction concerning things not yet seen. Faith is in God's word, in his plans. Ecclesiastes then turns out to be the book about faith in the Old Testament. This is how the man of faith looks at the world. A wise, faithful person will come to these convictions. So when you see the word vanity from now on in this book, translate it in your mind as vapor. Vapor of vapors, all is vaporous or vapor. And you have my permission to cross out vanity in your Bible, right? Vapor next to it, right there beginning, so you don't forget to think that way the rest of it. Otherwise, no reason to read it. The second problem we, we have is that we think the book is a bunch of timeless truths. Moralisms or proverbs that are impersonal. They're just tidbits of wisdom. You can line them up and memorize them or make your kid memorize them and they'll be wise and witty. Uh, I already gave you an example of the qualities of the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, meek, merciful. Here's one, uh, another example. Samson was strong, son. You be strong too. That's a moralism. Okay, that's not what's happening in the text. Or there's a fly in the ointment. <clears throat> so get a better pest strip, right? That's not what's talking about. Um, Solomon even addresses that. Not so. Rather, the book of Ecclesiastes is about Jesus. As he told those two on the road to Emmaus, as he told his disciples over the next 40 days, the book of Ecclesiastes is about Jesus Christ. And he fulfills everything in the book because the scriptures are about him. So let's see uh, how... Uh, it's not just a book of maxims, but it's a book about Christ in this passage in chapter 9. Now, there are two sections in verses 11 through 18. There's 11 and 12. Wisdom understands that God is in control of life, not man. And then there's the second section uh, in verses 13 through 18 uh, that I have titled, Wisdom Understands That Fearing God Is Better Than Man's Strength. Let's look at these first two verses. Chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. Now you should be asking, whoa. How's that about Jesus? We'll talk about that. Under the sun, that's another phrase that means from man's perspective. We live under the sun. It comes up in the east and goes down in the west. It's the world that we can observe. It's the biblical world um, that we look up to see. The world that we seek to control and influence. Now, to be swift, a warrior, to have bread or wealth or favor... Solomon is not saying that those things are bad or even unnecessary. But he is saying that they are not determinative. They're not determinative. That there are no prescribed rules 
that can guarantee success. I mean, Deion Sanders bragged a lot. And what happened yesterday? It didn't help him any, did it? He got squashed. Okay? There's no assurance of success when you have swiftness or weapons or bread or wealth or favor. When you have those qualities, there's no assurance of success. The strong are always expected to triumph, but often they do not, even in the Bible. Gideon was a strong character. He grew. He matured. He was started off kind of weak, but he, he, he tests the Lord, and the Lord answers his test, and he grows in faithfulness. And yet, he makes an effort that Israel worships. Is that not weakness? You, know, you would think better than that. Every time you read that, you go, no, don't do that. And he does it. When David falls with Bathsheba, how can this man, who's a man after God's own heart, do that? That's a sign of weakness. How about Josiah? A good king refuses to listen to Pharaoh. He's, Pharaoh says, God told me, don't come out here and mess with me. I'll kill you. And Josiah doesn't listen. Isn't that a failure of one who has the favor of God? Josiah did have the favor of God. Now, though these things are good, swiftness, strength, riches, favor, they do not necessarily guarantee an advantage over others or even in life itself. They're not necessarily determinative in the end. Well, what is determinative? Well, he tells us in verse 11, time and chance. (laughs) Time and chance. Or literally, time and an incident. Or timely incident. All right? An accident. Maybe a fatal accident that overtakes you. No one can predict when something tragic may happen that puts an end to your ability to enjoy life, achieve one's goals, or fulfill one's potential. There's some famous actor driving his Indian motorcycle the other morning, Saturday morning at 3 a.m. in Nashville. I never heard a guy before. But he goes through a stop sign, plows into a BMW on the side. And apparently, not on influence of anything, and he'd just taken some pictures before that he posted, dead. How about that for a timely incident? Putting an end to his aspirations of being a future uh, actor, whatever else. Um, instead, every person has his or, ho- his, his or her own inevitable time, that is, the time of death, but no one knows when that will be, at least under the sun. The incident is timely, only in the sense it will happen, but the timing is unpredictable. In such a world, all mortals are like fish and birds that wander about innocently, but all of a sudden they may be caught. The snare may spring or the net be cast. Like Nemo, right? He's swimming along, having a good time in the sunshine. And boom, he's in a net and on his way to some city in Australia. <laughs> okay? And that's the movie. Everything is subject to chances or timely incident under the sun, at least from our perspective. Which is why Solomon encourages you, nay, commands you, to enjoy life at every opportunity. Go back to verse 7 in chapter 9. Go. Now, this, these phrases show up six times in the book of Ecclesiastes, in case you're a little dim. Six times by the end of the book. And they're great verses. Go, eat your bread with joy, 
and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already proved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. See, there is brill cream in the Bible. Or the other stuff kids use today. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vaporous life that has been given you under the sun because that is your portion in your life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Six times I said this refrain appears in the book. Eat and drink and make your soul enjoy good in its labor for it's the gift of God. You're not supposed to try to plan the world out and execute it. It's all a gift. So rejoice and enjoy it. So what Christian wisdom advocates is celebration, rejoicing, enjoying what God has given you to enjoy. Man's true lot in this world is not firstly understood in terms of work or hard work, but joyous reception of the gifts of God. Approach life receptively, gratefully, enjoying God's gifts as they unfold. Then work with what He has given you. That's the right of transformation, right? Jesus took hold of the bread, and what did He do next? He gave thanks. Thank you, Father, for this bread. May we enjoy it and eat it. Thank you for good tasting things. And then he breaks it and distributes it, and they taste it and enjoy it, and they all rejoice and celebrate what we're going to do in a few minutes. All right? So we take what's been given, enjoy it, and then use it to exercise dominion. So instead of man seeking to control or leverage things according to his labor and his toil, he should enjoy Instead, rejoice in the good that his labor accomplishes and acknowledge that all that is a gift from the Lord. So Solomon says, chance happens to them all in verse 11. But is it chance? Do we believe it is chance? No. Go back to the famous rock song in chapter 3. You get a little extra bed at the end of the service if you know who made it into a rock song. But look at chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time appointed for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, etc. All right? God, your creator, is in control. He has appointed your time, your time to be born, your time to die, your time to plant, your time to harvest. Try to go out and plant crops in December. It's not going to work. God's appointed a time for that to work. So the point is, rest in His providence, His planning, His control. It is impossible to resist Him. So enjoy His ordinations and obey Him. Life is vaporous to us, to you under the sun, but not to him. It's not vaporous to God. Now that's faith, believing that. Now do you think Jesus was teaching his disciples these truths? Yes, I think he was. He certainly feasted with them during his ministry. And we see that when they get beaten for his name, in Acts chapter 5, what do they do? They give thanks. They rejoice. Also, he's been warning them, telling them that he's going to die. Uh, but it catches them off guard, doesn't it? They're not really paying attention. Just like the bird. All of a sudden, they see Jesus snatched away in the garden. And they're caught off guard. And then they flee at the cross. They won't stand around the cross. But he's preparing them, teaching them all these things. Uh, you know, 
Jesus has been strong. He's had food. He's had wisdom. But then he's hanging on the cross here. So while this first section teaches that wisdom understands that God is in control of life, it also functions as an introduction or a prelude to the short story that follows immediately afterward. And let me me read that to you again. uh, Solomon says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So I've titled this, Wisdom Understands that Fearing God is Better Than Man's Strength. So you have this poor wise man in a small city with a few men up against a great king with a large siege works. Now the king appears to have the advantage, doesn't he? The determinative edge. Will it come out purely as it ought to with time and materials and resources being the victor against scarcity and poverty? Probably like Russia thought when they attacked Ukraine. They had the army. They had the equipment. They thought it was being walking in the night. A cakewalk, right? Go in there. We'll get Kiev in a couple days. Well, no. It doesn't happen as it seems that it should under the sun. The poor man delivers the city by his wisdom. We're not told or how or what he says or does, only that he's wise. The conclusion of this story, wisdom is better than strength. The words of the poor wise man heard in the quietness of the encircled city are better than the upright, uproarious shouting of the king amongst his foolish soldiers outside the walls as he seeks to whip them up to victory. Wisdom is better than the response of weapons of war. But even this parable reverberates and reflects back to the first point made simply in verse 11, 12, that man is not in control. Does wisdom elevate this poor man in the eyes of the community? Here he's got the wisdom. He delivers the city. Is he remembered? Text tells you. Is he admired, revered, honored? No. Does he receive rewards and wealth for his wisdom under the sun? No. Uh, Verse 15, uh, B. Yet no one remembered that poor man. Even Solomon says the possession of wisdom by you, by me, does not guarantee our advantage or one's triumph, one's success and recognition under the sun. As verse 11 said, there's not always bread to the wise. This guy didn't get anything out of it. Yes, wisdom is better than strength. Verse 16, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised as words are not heard. Uh, But even the wise use of wisdom by this poor man does not guarantee his proper recognition. So now, how do you see this story as pointing to Jesus? How does this point to Jesus? You're reading the text and you're asking yourself, Jesus said in 
in Luke 24, this is about me. Well, Jesus was humble, right? Jesus was poor and lowly, exercising and owning all the attributes of the Beatitudes. He was all those things. Uh, He was this poor, wise man who saves the city, the city of God, the church, from Satan, the great king, who had encircled the church and almost destroyed it. The great king with all his shouting subjects. They had surrounded Jesus. They had put up siege works. And what were they saying? Crucify him. Crucify him. Put him to death. But what about this guy Barabbas? No, let him go. Crucify Jesus. Jesus was the last faithful Jew standing. All had deserted him. It was down to him like the poor wise man. But was Jesus exonerated? Was he commemorated by the Jews for his ministry among them? For all the demons he'd exorcised? For all the people he'd healed? For all the people he fed? Add up all the people he fed. Was he highly honored for his wisdom? Was he made ruler and remembered by the people at the appropriate time under the sun? No, he wasn't. Or was his wisdom despised and his words not heeded as the poor man in our story? Yes, they killed him. What did they say? What did the crowd say? We have no king but Caesar. And Jesus had already said earlier in his ministry, your father is the devil. And they're like, yeah, we like Caesar. Let his blood beware on our heads and on our kids' shoulders. All right? And also, did not one sinner... Judas destroy much good, 18b, but one sinner destroys much good. Uh, Did not one sinner put an end to the life of Jesus, destroying the only righteous man ever born by his underhanded betrayal at the end of an embracing kiss? But again, the Bible doesn't let you stop there. Again, that betrayal, of course, was not the end of the matter. Judas thinks he's got everything wired. Satan's going, yeah, I've got this all planned out. It's going according to my plan. It's not the end of the matter. Why? Because God is in control. Not Judas and not Pilate, not Satan, not the rulers. Christ was exalted and is exalted. Far above all worldly wisdom, above all power and dominion, above every name that is named, He was remembered by the only one that counts, his father, who honored him and continues to honor him as his son. Reading from Philippians chapter 2, and you're familiar with this verse, Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him. And this comes right after him having been humbled. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the script got flipped several times in our story, which leads to some closing observations and implications. First of all, you know not your time. That's, That's verse 12. Man knows not his time, like the birds that are caught in a snare. Uh, ponder that, meditate on it. 
you don't know your time. So live each day appropriately. Live each day, live each day with short accounts before the face of God. For the next instant, you may be standing before Him. Just uh, two, three weeks ago, 18,000 people went to bed in the city of Derna in Libya. They woke up dead, standing before their maker because of a flood of, of two dams that broke. They didn't know that, going to bed. They weren't thinking about meeting their maker that morning or that evening when they went to sleep. Man knows not his time, nor the actor in Nashville. You know not your time, but it will come. You cannot stop it. You cannot prevent it. And neither should you, because it's but your entrance into eternal glory. Right? Look forward to that day and rejoice uh, each and every day as you work hard and apply that wisdom under the sun to the best of your ability. Remember, it is your death that you live for. Didn't Jesus live that he might die for you? He lived his life in faithfulness that he could go to the cross. Shouldn't you follow in his footstep? Hasn't he ordained that you should die and shed this mortal body for that which is immortal, unstained by sin, by your sin? You think about that every time you sin, right? Every time you you say something stupid to your wife, you're like, man, I've been married so long, I can't believe I still do that. Jesus, help me. Who will deliver me from being such a jerk? Okay? Uh, A sinner. Um, And you practice this every day in your Christian life. You die for others. Uh, you die for your wife, you die for your husband, you, you, you brothers and sisters help your little brothers, sisters, children. You go to sleep every night. God has so ordered our lives that we must die to ourselves every night. And you can't stop it. Thirdly, remember too that your works and wisdom will not always be remembered, but may be despised and forgotten. Your works and wisdom will not always be blessed and rewarded in this life under the sun. But that's okay because you don't work for man's recognition. You work for the master's recognition. What do you want to hear him say? You want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. What Jesus thinks is what matters. His evaluation is the final measure. So ponder that and remember that under the sun you may not always see the blessedness of your faithfulness just like the poor man who saved the city was still right for him to save the city. Just like Jesus, who was rewarded with death for all his healing and compassion and kindness and miracles. But isn't it great that God had ordained his death to be the salvation of the world, right? Fourth, train yourself to see Jesus in all the Bible particularly in the Old Testament. Train yourself to think about how is this a picture of Jesus? Now that's easy when you're talking about Adam, right? I mean, the New Testament tells you he's the second Adam. Oh, so must be something there. Oh, he's the head of the the new covenant. Moses, that's pretty easy too. Hebrews 3, David. Oh, he's the son of David. Well, what about Samson? I spoke that a couple sermons ago, but how is Samson a picture of Jesus? This guy that's sleeping with harlots? picture of Jesus? How does that work? Or Esther. (laughs) Wait a minute, Burke, she's a woman. How's she a picture of Jesus? But she is. Just like Jael is. That one's easier, right? She crushes the head of Sisera. And that comes from Genesis 
chapter 3. But how about Mordecai? They're all in trouble because Mordecai is a faithless Jew who's being an idiot and won't give homage to the king's man. How is he a picture of Christ? Think about that. Lastly, do not let the world's evaluation of Christ uh, rule in your heart, in your mind. Don't let the world's evaluation or in your life. He was the poor man. Uh, he is the despised man. And he's remembered by the world often as only the nice teacher, the good guy, okay? Uh, the great philosopher. Certainly not as the warrior, the deliverer, the savior that he is, nor the savior that the world needs. Men despise him to their own destruction. Understand this, that the world has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible Jesus for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than serving the creator and savior is blessed forever. So don't follow the world in their vanity and in their arrogance. Rather, in your vaporous life, follow Jesus, rejoicing and giving thanks to the Father for whom all good gifts come. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these stories of Jesus, his faithfulness before you, his teachings, his healings. We thank you that he endured and persevered in the midst of persecution and hatred. Cause us to look upon him, uh, to delight in seeing him throughout all the scriptures, to realize that he is the fulfillment of all those things, and that as we do that, as we ponder him, we become more like him. Help us, uh, Lord Jesus, to be faithful to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.